Hi everyone, I'm Kara Katruzla, and today I'm talking with Michelle Wilgen, who is the author of four books, including Wine People, released on August 1st. She's the editor of the food writing anthology Food and Booze, and the former executive editor of the literary journal Ten House. Michelle is also a freelance editor and creative writing teacher, and co-runs the Madison Writers Studio, which I was just looking at, and it has this incredible array of workshops, including one called Visions and Revisions, which is super intriguing. Michelle, thank you so much for being here today. This is so much, so many words, so many Google Docs and drafts, I imagine. And I'm just wondering, where are you and what does today look like for you? Well, first of all, thank you for having me. So today is a really typical day in that I'm wearing about six hats at once and trying to move back and forth between them. So I'm thinking about trying to write some articles and get ideas for publicizing wine people for when it comes out. I'm putting together an event pairing scientists and writers and sort of a speed dating research uh, event that I'm getting together. I'm prepping for a class that's coming up. And yeah, and then I'm thinking about whether I can get started on a new book, because it's a good idea sometimes to have your attention somewhat on something new. So you're not just completely freaking out about the one that's about to arrive. Oh, yes, I I know that feeling. You know, there's certain things you can control in the pre-publication process and many things that you can't. So it's nice to be in a generative phase too. Well, that sounds like at least six hats, maybe 16. How do you plan or compartmentalize those things as you move through the day? I feel like I should probably do more compartmentalizing or, or scheduling it out. But I find that I usually start my day with the administrative tasks that are kind of easy. Um, it always helps me ease in. And I do that too. When I'm in a writing phase, I will usually give myself these really basic prompts to start with. And it might even be that I go back and I proofread pages that I might not even keep, but it helps kind of get the wheels turning. And then a lot of times I will try and do creative stuff in the morning after that. And then I use lunch as a, a good break to make myself happy by looking forward to food that I'm going to eat because you know my, my world is ruled by it. Then try and dig in again to something that maybe is creative in a different way, like the editorial work and the teaching work after that. You mentioned that you were prepping for a workshop. So what does that look like? You've been running the Writer's Studio for 10 years. Is that right? Yeah, we're celebrating our 10th anniversary this fall. It becomes this place where I can actually be with writers in a room. And it keeps me connected to thinking about writing in a different way. And it helps me as an editor as well. So the classes I'm prepping for right now, um, one is a novel revision class that I'm going to be teaching at Aspen Words next week. And for that, I'm finishing reading the sixth novel manuscript. Um, and I'll be you know, thinking about all the little things that I want to talk about with everybody and you know, what feedback I want to give individually. And then the other one I'm prepping for is the class you mentioned earlier, which is Visions and Revisions, which is this very cool class where the writers come in and they spend the first six months generating new drafts. And then they switch teachers and they move over to a different teacher. And then with that new teacher, they revise at least two of the pieces that they wrote in the first six months. Everybody gets to see how each other have revised the the work they saw in early drafts or see what they've done and get to discuss why did they do it and how did it work. That sounds incredible, like a sort of long-term relationship with a class and with teachers as opposed to a sort of drop-in for four weeks. It's super generative and then it's what's next, you know, and it sounds like you are switching into that editing and engaging and and revising brains so seamlessly, which sounds very appealing. And you wrote a piece for Tin House, which I really loved about editing and being edited, something that you often tell writers as you're reading a comment might be, well, here's how this felt to me and was that your intention, which 
I wrote it down and I have to remember for future pieces that I edit because it's such a gentle and helpful way of editing someone's work without being overly prescriptive. How long did it take you to sort of hone your editing style and the actual language that you use when engaging with writers? It's it's such a sensitive process. Yeah, it, you know, it's taken a while and I feel like it's it's ongoing because I know when I first started editing, I was a lot younger and I wasn't too certain of myself. And I felt like the writer would not feel that I had given them my all unless I really got in there and, you know, tore the thing apart. And uh, <laughs> I discovered that people don't necessarily feel, you know, that that is a pleasure to receive that kind <laughs> not of attention. Exactly. Yeah. And I had to learn sort of how to deal with it and how to feel out how different writers want to be. Because some writers, of course, are like, I don't need the gentleness. I don't even want it. I want you to get right in there and tell me what's what. And other writers are the opposite. And I myself am different, you know, different ways at different times. I happened upon that particular thing of just saying, here's how I'm getting this. I think by happenstance or by sort of realizing that there were better ways for me to express it. And I'm sure by having other editors talk to me in that way and just finding that really helpful. My hot take on prescriptiveness is that I have actually become kind of a fan of it in the teaching format. In, in editing, I might not do it so much. But I find it really easy for all of us in a workshop setting to diagnose a problem. But the struggle with writing and revising is you have to figure out how are you going to fix that problem? Like what is really causing the slowness in a particular passage? Or if we're not connecting with a character, like why is that? So I actually will like to offer suggestions about, well, you could do this, you could do that with a really clear caveat that the writer never has to take my suggestions. What I want them to take is the thought process. And they can get practice doing that for each other. And then it makes it easier for them to do it for themselves. So I've come around completely and I end up, you know, just my hot take is like, no, I'm, I'm all in on prescriptiveness, just knowing that we never make you do anything. This is your piece and you decide how to apply all of this feedback. That's so good. And it's the big revisions that I feel like are often so challenging to writers in, in any form of writing, short stories or books or musicals or a long form journalistic style piece. It's so easy to sort of get caught up in the line edits. You know, I can tweak word choice and, and smooth out sentences and then forget that there's a giant missing puzzle piece in this work. And so I'm curious when applied to your own projects, we could take wine people, for example, how many drafts do you think you went through? And what did that revision process look like? The first few drafts were probably not as many drafts as I have done in the past because I mostly knew what I wanted to do with these characters. And I've hopefully gotten better over the years at creating a first draft that is not as far off the mark as they have been in the past. Because I'm often somebody who has to discover through writing what my story is, but I have gotten a little better at giving myself story generating situations and paying attention to the right things. Whereas before, I think I would sometimes just be like, oh, you know, that's an interesting idea. Now I'm going to write about an ice cream stand. And I do that for a chapter. And, you know, then you just have to cut it because you didn't discover the right. thing. My big failing in that regard is that I will often really like the sentences, but they have to actually contribute to the story. And so it's too easy for me to be like, ooh, look at that pretty sentence. I'm just going to keep on looking at it. And then you forget exactly, as you said, that the whole scene in which that sentence resides doesn't actually have anything to do with the story. So with Wine People, the really big changes that happened with it was that somewhat late in the game, an editor gave me a pretty transformative note, which was she suggested that we move these characters who in the earlier draft were kind of closer to the beginnings of their careers. And she said, make them further along in their careers so that when the succession plot happens, which is kind of what incites the whole book, they actually have a shot at the prize. 
I was at first just like, oh no, I don't want to do that because I was tired, you know, and I, <laughs> I'm like everybody else. I'm like, I'm so tired. Please let me stop. <laughs> and I knew that it was going to be not necessarily the hugest revision, but it wasn't the kind of revision that you could do by just going through and changing a few sentences. You know, it's an elemental change to the situation and it was going to be a blank page revision. And I have long known that that can be a very smart way to revise and have told my students, like, you should really consider it. And they would all give me exactly the look that I was giving to my editor when she suggested this for me, which luckily she couldn't see, which is the look that says, I don't want to do that. Please don't make me do that. (laughs) But what made me finally do it was to realize it would be easier to revise with a blank page. And you're not throwing out everything that came before it. You're actually like, you know, looking at it and it's on the second of two screens or it's on a printed page. But, you know, you just aren't trying to fit a new story into the old existing forms. And it was very freeing once I made myself do it. And it had the added benefit of, you know, now when I suggest to my students or to my clients that they should try the the blank page for, you know, certain circumstances, I get to say, and I promise you I've actually done it. And there are times when it truly is easier than trying to do what you've been doing. And are we talking completely fresh document and you are typing from the beginning of the story and while looking at it in another window where you're just like, I'm going through and sort of filtering the old story through this new lens? Exactly. Um, And I didn't have to do it for the entire story. It was mainly, but it was a significant portion of it. It was probably the first two thirds, I think. And some of that changed actual scenes and it changed some of the plot, but it provided such a useful kind of focal point. um, And it gave me something so much clearer to be focusing on. Once I got over the hump of making myself do it, it actually went pretty swimmingly because, you know, by then I knew these people so well and I knew all of this so well that it, it actually wasn't as bad as I thought it was going to be. Yeah, honestly, that sounds so freeing too. We can so often find ourselves down these multiple rabbit holes of, okay, I'm going to shift these three paragraphs and the, these three pages and swap these things. And it it actually just kind of unfurls the thread in our mind of like the story that we're telling. I just, I really want to use this strategy on something when I'm forced into a corner. Right. Yeah. Because you won't do it before that. (laughs) No, of course not. Well, you mentioned another part of your day is looking at things to do before wine people. I'm curious because you've published so many books before, what are some things that you've done pre-publication that you definitely want to repeat and some things that you're like, yeah, no, that is not getting my time this time around. The things that I always want to repeat or build on is to just do more of personal outreach kind of stuff, you know, more of just like going to all of your fellow writer people and anybody who you just hope cares and -hmm. say, you know, this is what I'm doing. And I love the fact that readings nowadays are more often a conversation with like a local writer. And so I'm doing a lot of that kind of thing. And I think that actually pays off, you know. And the other thing too, is trying to think of um, articles to pitch and places to reach out to so that your name is kind of in the ether about the time that that comes out. I think the thing that I do less of is thinking, well, I should go give readings anywhere and everywhere, no matter whether I know people there or not, just because um, I find that, you know, the world is big and it's really busy. And if you don't have people there or they don't have um, like a really great uh, reading series or something like that, then it's just hard to convince people that they should come and see you. So I've gotten a little bit more careful about thinking about where to go. I mean, I love giving readings. I'll go wherever if I think that there is a place for me there. But I've just have found that, you know, maybe I have to do more setup to make sure that there's like a real audience there. You wrote this other piece about you started a no reading writers group, which I love. It's a homeworkless group where you talk about writing, editing, publishing, but you're not actually reading each other's work or critiquing it. And I'm just wondering, does that group still play a role in your life and what you've sort of gained from a group that is structured in that specific way? 
Yeah. So that was an idea from Chloe Benjamin, who wrote The Immortalists. And we did it for a bit, but the pandemic kind of made it hard. And actually, she is finding a new way to start it up. The idea is to have a few more people because we kept it really intimate for that first one. And what that meant was that if, you know, one or two people couldn't come, then it was sort of, you know, hard to get a a quorum. So she's going to make it bigger and keep it casual. And I love this because, as I said in that article, when she said, you know, you don't have to write anything. And I said, good, because I refuse to, because I was so, (laughs) I was so tired. I was like, I categorically refuse to even try and for this. But if we can meet and talk about everything surrounding it, I would love to. So that I think works really, really well. And it sort of depends on you know where you are in projects and where you are in your writing career. But I think all of the people she is talking to feel pretty confident and have built up our people that we go to for our reads and we have the people that we impose ourselves on and, and do the same for them. And so what we need is often not necessarily a read from four different people at once. Um, which doesn't mean we never will. Like there are times Mm -hmm. when I absolutely need that. But I just like this idea a lot because I think it's just doable. Uh, One line from that piece that stuck out to me was that you said you're a humorless martinet about deadlines. And I know that was sort of meant to be funny, but that's just something I love to talk about. Why deadlines are so important to you. What is your relationship with a deadline? Well, I'm really, I really am a humorless Martinet when it comes to a deadline that I have, like, especially one that I've agreed to, you know, it's, Mm -hmm. I, I can count on one hand, the number of times that I have gone back to a client and said, I might need an extra day or two, because I just really, I don't like that. And I also think I have that sense that once you open the door, what if I suddenly become a person who just doesn't care about deadlines and, you know, And I think most writers need even a self-imposed deadline or something that is ever so slightly external and really there's no teeth to it, but we need it in order to say you've got to do it. But when it comes to the workshop setting or a writing group setting, I discovered when I started teaching that you could have all of these people who are very successful, they do plenty of stuff in their lives, you know, they can meet deadlines. And the moment one person says, oops, didn't get it done, going to send it to you a little bit later, it touches off this chain reaction where suddenly nobody thinks they have to meet the deadline. Then your teacher is like, oh, okay, so somebody just decided not to deliver work. So I guess we have a shorter class. So you're really requiring people to provide a significant portion of the work you're going to discuss. And if they don't, it throws it all into chaos and it suddenly makes it like it doesn't matter. And so I just was shocked to discover that that had such a big effect. And that's why I became such a humorless martinet about deadlines, (laughs) because I was like, "You, you people have driven me to it. That's what's happened here. The domino effect really got you. You mentioned lunch is a very big part of your life. (laughs) Food and wine, obviously, very big part of the books that you publish. So what's for lunch is the first question. And then also, I'm curious about wine people, because it's a story of a friendship that travels from France, Germany, Italy, California, wine country. Did you do any field trips? Of course, you know, you got to do a field trip. Um, So lunch today, I'm not sure exactly what it will be, but I did bake some bread today. So I think it will probably involve a bunch of bread as soon as it cools down and maybe some cheese because a friend of mine brought home some kind of lovely cheese from Amsterdam. So I'll I'll add that in. We do a CSA. So I have a bunch of vegetables that just need to be used. So that's often lunch for me when I haven't thought it through very much is like a pile of vegetables and then some kind of protein and some sort of bread. And and it all works out pretty well, actually. It's so wholesome. That sounds delicious. I know, right? It's It sounds so lovely. I really do. Like I'm one of those weirdos who really looks forward to the break in my day, whether I look forward to like my breakfast or my lunch, and it just gives me something to shoot for. So I like it. But with the field trips for wine people, one of the field trips that was really fun that I did was out to the central coast of California, because I have a good friend who lives in San Luis Obispo, which is not too far from wine country there. I and another friend who I used to work with um, at a restaurant, and she did go into the wine industry and worked for an importer for a number of years. 
went out there together. And we did this sort of mini version of what the characters go through, which is, you know, we probably visited four wineries in one day, then, you know, came home afterward. And this is minuscule compared to what an actual professional will do. But it gave me a little bit of that sense of like, I, you have to spit the wine, even though it felt weird to me and disrespectful, it became clear to me. Like I was like, I will be incapacitated. So I have to. We drank red wine all day because that's sort of what the area was known for. And so by the end of the day, you're desperate for something different. And somebody poured me like a Pinot Grigio and I've never cared about Pinot Grigio in my life. And I've never had one more juicy and zesty and citrusy and delicious than this one, whether it was because I'd been drinking something else all day and I needed something different or because it's really a delicious wine. It's probably just a really good wine. So that was really wonderful because I got just a little hint of what this was like and I got to see a different landscape. And then when I was in Italy a few years ago with several friends, one of those friends is a wine store owner and she had set up a couple of visits to places in the market. The Italian places in the novel are drawn from these wineries that we visited while we were there. And are you furiously taking notes in between tastings and, and experiencing things? Or do you sort of come back and digest everything and incorporate it into your writing from there? I usually just digest. Um, the one difference is that if I'm interviewing somebody, and I did a ton of interviewing people for this novel, I have learned that I'd rather just record it and then talk to people because it just frees me up so much more. And I don't like, you know, looking away from somebody constantly and writing stuff without making eye contact. And so once I realized that that's just the best way to do it and our iPhones make it so easy, I found that that was much more helpful to me. And things still stick in my head. I might jot down something here and there, but for the most part, I was taking a lot of photographs because I wanted to be able to call out that landscape again, or there was this really very cool thing where we, we happened to be at a winery when the mobile bottling truck arrived. We watched this bottling truck come like trundling up the hillside and set up and start bottling. And then, you know, I don't think we saw them actually leave, but it was really fascinating. So I have a couple of videos of that that I took. There is something about getting the visual that is really helpful to me and returning to it. Not to jump ahead to your next book, but I am so curious because you mentioned that this might be a part of your day, thinking about topics or book ideas for future projects. How do you approach that? You know, saying I want to write another book, such a big task, a big project, but are you looking at what's sort of drawing your interest right now? What you have sort of been navigating towards over the last few years? How does that play a part of your life? Yeah, it's different this time because last fall, I started this position as a writer in residence at part of UW that's called the Wisconsin Institutes for Discovery. And it's an interdisciplinary organization on campus. It's all these scientists working in anything from like genetics to, you know, the microbiomes to virtual environments to visual perception. It's fascinating. And so part of my job when I went there was to say, look, I, I don't have an idea specifically. I would be here finishing one project and looking around to figure out what my next one is going to be. And that worked out really well because what they want you to do is basically just be in the mix, be talking to these scientists and finding out about what they do and see what grabs you. And one of the things that really grabbed me from that was a focus on like wellness. And I began thinking about, because I, I wanted to be able to put things in opposition to each other. There's a really wonderful writer named Antonia Nelson, who has talked about how helpful it is to have opposing forces in your novel, in your fiction. And so I started thinking, well, well-being is actually a scientific pursuit where, you know, neurologists and psychiatrists or whatever are really studying what's happening in the brain when we are content and how do we get there? And I started thinking, well, what if I can compare that to wellness, which is the industry mm -hmm. where it can be so much snake oil? That started to get me thinking. So I'm trying to build out 
what I want to do with that. That's where I would really am going to benefit and have benefited from talking to other writers about just sort of working through what's the situation that's going to catch the gears on the story and make it move forward. If I can give one person, you know, or one group of people who is the snake oil people and the other ones who are the real scientists and how can I put them in a position where they're going to cause problems for each other. And we so often sort of take it for granted like that I'm going to tell someone an idea and see where they perk up or where they check out or where they have questions. And that just sounds like such a collaborative and exciting way to generate your own enthusiasm as you go forward. One of the things that has happened over the years, like the more freelance editorial work and teaching I do, is that you get just get so many different ideas in your head and so many different ways of approaching a story. So I felt like I needed somebody to help me filter a little bit and, and just to think about like, what do I actually want to do here? What would be interesting to me? And, and how am I going to do this? And luckily, I know a lot of really wonderful teachers and writers who are good at helping you ask the necessary questions to get started. So like I have, I have my ideas and I have some pages and I need to do more of the, okay, you're just going to have to do the part you hate. Like I'm somebody who loves to revise and finds the writing part. So I'm just going to have to give myself little prompts to make myself keep going. This idea of prompts or organizing principles sort of brings me to my last question, which is, do you have a tool that you use to organize either your day or your writing life or your editing life that you just could not live without? I have two and they're not really even tools. I mean, well, one is literally I will keep a notepad and I write things down and I cross them off. Like, you know, the things I'm going to do, because there's something about that act of looking at it, writing it, that helps me organize my head. And then I, I do two things on my laptop, which is one, anything that I am in the process of doing is just sitting there on my desktop, not in a folder. It's just there so I can't lose it. And I know that it has to get done. But I also, I do something that I think you're really not supposed to do, which is I use my email as like an organizing tool. So I keep all of these many emails in different folders and it just makes it easy for me because everything is conducted over email nowadays. You know, that's really where I, I have to go for most things. Um, so I use that as my backup filing system. And I'm pretty sure that, you know, anybody who hears this will be like, you absolutely should not do that. So is that like conversations with clients and drafts or like your own personal writing is in your email too? It's both. It's really like the conversations that you have about, you know, you're working with a client and what are their questions and what have you agreed on? And my classes, I have different folders for my classes because we do a lot over email. And then I'll email myself little reminders about what do I want to be writing about today? Or, you know, what's my next prompt for myself? They can be very useful that way. I love this. I have not actually met someone who uses email in this specific way. So I think because it, it's a bad idea. I think that's <laughs> no. probably why. Like you, you may find. It works for you. I do have to ask though, what's for dinner? Because I feel like food is the bread and butter of, of your life. So do you have a dinner plan yet? I don't have a dinner plan yet, but I found myself thinking today that I feel like I've got this yen from like homemade pasta and maybe I want something with tomato sauce, but I don't want it to be like a heavy tomato sauce, you know, because it's, it's summer and you're not in the mood for something long simmered. So I'm trying to think about whether I want to do a nice light summery version of that. And I find pasta is the answer to most of my questions. So that's almost always where I go. That's so perfect. Well, thank you so much, Michelle. Best of luck with the publication of, of Wine People. Can't wait to see what comes next. Thank you so much for having me. This was a lot of fun.